And now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Warren Olney. Warren Olney is the host and executive producer of the KCRW public radio program, To The Point. He also hosted Which Way LA, KCRW's signature daily local news program from 1992 until 2016. Olney and his programs have been honored with more than 40 national, regional, and local awards for broadcast excellence. He has received Emmy Awards for reporting and anchoring and golden mics for investigative reporting. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Warren Olney. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here with uh, Professor Edwards. And the big question of the evening, of course, is can the United States or could the United States go bankrupt? We'll get to it, I guarantee. We'll finally get to the question at some point. But we really want to talk about uh, uh, the incidents that are so carefully uh, reported uh, by the professor in his book, uh, American Default, the untold story of FDR, the Supreme Court, and the battle over gold. He describes it, and I think accurately, as a, uh, an incident during a year that may well have been the most active and, and changing, change-worthy, is that the right term, uh, year in peacetime in the United States, namely 1933, when the Depression was ending and the New Deal and the welfare state were finally getting underway in the United States. Uh, it's a fascinating time, and uh, he describes it uh, superbly uh, well. And I really want to talk some about uh, some of the incidents that took place then. And uh, Professor, it's a great pleasure to be with you, and, and uh, I really, I'm really glad to be here. So, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected in 1932. He wasn't actually inaugurated until uh, several months later. And one month after he was inaugurated, he issued an order. Tell us about that order. Well, um, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, in, uh, FDR was the last president inaugurated in March. Uh, since then, as we, we all know, presidents are inaugurated on January 20th. Yes. Um, uh, FDR was inaugurated on March 4th. The, a constitutional amendment that changed inauguration date had been passed but had not been enacted. On April 5th, so exactly one month mm -hmm. after being inaugurated, he uh, released an executive order which compelled or obligated every American to sell his or her gold to the federal government. All of it. You could not hold on to gold. Well, not quite. You could hold on to $100 equivalent of gold. So if you had gold coins that you had inherited from your dad or from, they, they were given to you at bar, mit, bar Mitzvah or when you were born, you could not hold on to them. You had to sell them to the government at the ongoing price of $20.67 an ounce. And a few months later, the price was increased to $35. But you already had sold your gold at 20. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> so uh, that, that is, from today's perspective, very un-American. But some of you may remember that it was illegal for people to buy and sell gold in this country until 1974. Uh, so we not only had to sell, I mean, I was not around, 
but we Americans had to sell all our gold uh, at a given price, and then the price was raised, and we people tried to get a recourse, and this is what it, the, the book talks about, and it went to the Supreme Court. We'll talk about that later. Uh, but we couldn't have gold. Keep and this gold. applied to corporations, too. Everyone. Anybody everyone. who had gold. Everyone. Yeah, there were, there were three exceptions. The $100 per person. Um, dentists. So then dentists around here. <laughs> you guys who were very lucky. Fair enough. Um, and uh, coins of numismatic value. Coin collect collectors. Uh, the Secretary of the Treasury was the number one coin collector in the country. Now, was there any advance warning about this? Did, did Roosevelt say anything during the campaign, which was so a few, few months, really, just before this, uh, suggesting that he might not do anything like that? Uh, the campaign was uh, very uh, acrimonious, and um, Herbert Hoover, uh, at first, did not want to campaign. He thought that uh, he was a great engineer, and he, his uh, job was to be uh, in the White House trying to deal with the Great Depression. Uh, but when, when it became apparent that Governor Roosevelt uh, was going to be the candidate and that he had a good chance of being elected the next president, uh, Hoover went on the attack and accused Roosevelt of wanting to get off the gold standard and do something similar to what he did. Um, and he accused him of wanting to replace the gold-based dollar, we were on the gold standard, uh, for a rubber gold, rubber gold. And, um, and FDR gave a very famous speech about a week before the election saying that he would not do that or implying that he would not do that and saying that there was a very deep, serious, uh, sacred covenant between the government of the US, independently of who was the chief executive, and the American people, and that contracts were written on gold terms, in gold terms, and that that covenant would be maintained and, 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 and so on. So it so took a month to break that promise. It took a month, but things happened during that month. There are things that have been, uh, uh, I was not born in this country, uh, and I didn't go to college in this country. I, I went to grad school in this country. Uh, so I didn't have, like most of you, uh, your American history class in uh, junior high, and then again in high school, and then in college. So for me, all of this was new. But there are things that most people don't know. So on uh, February 14th, 1933, uh, some guy, uh, unemployed, a bricklayer from Brooklyn tried to kill President-elect Roosevelt. And he was not killed, but uh, the guy who was riding with him in this open car, the mayor of Chicago, was killed. So th there is an attempt on the president, um, and uh, his, uh, the mayor of Chicago comes to Florida, this is in Miami, uh, because he had supported in the Democratic Party Al Smith, and he wants to get in good terms with the president-elect. I mean, this is Chicago politics after all, right? And he goes there and he's killed. Um, and, and we had a very serious banking crisis. And when FDR is about to take over, most banks in the country are closed. Why did that, what, what was the reason for the banking crisis? Well, we had a lot of banks and many of them as Senator uh, Carter Glass of 
Glass-Steagall fame, uh, said in a very famous speech in the Senate, uh, it was easier to open a bank in the US at the time than to become a secretary uh, in Capitol Hill. You had to take several exams to become a secretary and take notes uh, in uh, shorthand in Capitol Hill. Uh, but to open a bank, all you needed was to raise $5,000 from your friends. <laughs> and many of these banks were very weak, and they were failing. Um, now, what the key issue at the time was, and, and people were withdrawing their money and putting it under their mattress and withdrawing gold. So Herbert Hoover wanted to have a federal banking holiday. And the question was, under what legal authority? So we were talking about the law when we were out there, yeah. and, 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 and your dad being a very prominent lawyer. Uh, under what authority could the federal government close all the banks in the country? S the states could close them. And every state except for Illinois, New York, and uh, Pennsylvania, and maybe another one, um, had to close their banks at, in, in early March. And so Herbert Hoover says, there's, or someone told him, one of his advice, there's one statute that we can use, and that is the 1917 Trading with the Enemy Act. The Trading with the Enemy Act had been passed in 1917, and it allowed the president to uh, declare a gold embargo so that our gold would not go to the Germans. But the problem was that, of course, in 1933, we were not at war, we didn't have an enemy. Uh, so Herbert Hoover told uh, uh, FDR, I will uh, declare a national banking bank uh, holiday, and we will sort of, two days before inauguration, but you have to support me. And then you can pass a law, with, because the new Congress was totally democratic. You'll pass a law, and, but I don't want to be prosecuted for passing a statute that is unconstitutional. We don't have an enemy. And FDR said no. So inauguration comes. And um, that night, the next day at night, at midnight, uh, FDR signs this executive <laughs> order that closes every bank in the country based on the Trading with the Enemy Act. Now, that's very familiar. The president says one thing the first day, and then he says something else the next day. I mean, right, I, right. we know and, about and that. Signs, that pattern was established and he, in And he signs executive orders. <laughs> so, and Hoover didn't come after him, didn't claim that he was well, uh, violating the Constitution. Hoover was uh, devastated by everything that happened. I mean, he thought that uh, Americans were really didn't understand him, and they uh, they should have been grateful to all the efforts that he had done mm. uh, even before when he was Secretary of, the, of Commerce and he was in charge of the Mississippi uh, flood, um, uh, dealing with that. And, 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 and he spent the rest of his life trying to convince, uh, I mean, if you read his autobiography, the whole thing is about I was right and FDR was wrong. Let me ask you about the, the uh, order to sell all the gold to the United States. Why, why do you want all this gold if you're going off the gold standard? What's the point? Yeah, we, um, um, uh, FDR had not decided yet to get uh, off the gold standard. Uh, he didn't quite understand very well how the economy worked. Uh, FDR is one of the most studied, um, probably after George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, uh, chief executives. So we know, um, and I've seen, the reading list of the courses in economics that he took at Harvard. He didn't take any courses in economics when he was at Columbia, a law school. Uh, 
but he, he took courses, but he didn't quite understand what was going on. And he had... I don't blame him. I never understood right. it either. Well, <laughs> but you are not the president yet. That's true. <laughs> that'll, that'll We're waiting for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, some of us would like you to take over tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, but um, so uh, FDR did not necessarily want to get off the gold standard. He was an experimenter. He liked to experiment, um, and he l left all his um, uh, options open. So he offered the post of Secretary of the Treasury to Senator Glass from Virginia, and Senator Glass was a great supporter of the gold standard. And he put he asked for only one. Uh, uh, commitment from the president-elect, and that was that he would not abandon the gold standard. And FDR told him, I, I'm not planning to do that, but I cannot make that commitment. So Carter Glass did not become the secretary of the treasury. We get why, what, again, why do we need the gold? Because it backs if the... We're getting off the it, gold it, it got, we are not getting, we don't so know. Before, so before the, we get off the gold right, right. So the gold is the basis of this pyramid over which credit is built. And uh, we needed at the time, uh, the Federal Reserve needed to have 40% equivalent of its liabilities backed by gold. Okay. And um, if it went below that, it had to siphon back credit, liquidity, in order to fulfill what it was known as a cover ratio. And then we get off the gold standard in, uh, on April 19th. Um, and then we, in order to do that, um, we have to get rid of the gold clauses in contracts. The real devaluation takes place in January. Okay, so before we get to the gold clauses, because that's really a huge issue, what about the gold? What happened to it? There's the no, I looked in the index of your book and I read through the book. I never saw a reference to Fort Knox. Why not? <laughs> okay, that's a good one. So. <laughs> 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 yeah, Fort Knox is where the gold is, and uh, uh, when I teach uh, economics, I tell uh, my students that in 1971, President Nixon said, like, uh, I, there are people old enough here that will know uh, Roberto Mano de Piedra Duran, the Panamanian boxer, that said, no mass, no mass. So Nixon told the French, no mass, no mass, we will not give you any more of our gold. And he closed the gold window in 70. Mm -hmm. That's Fort, Fort Knox. Okay. In 33, we had to sell the gold to the Federal Reserve, which added to the problem. Because the Federal Reserve was only 20 years old as an institution. It was founded in 1913. And people didn't really trust the Federal Reserve. They didn't know what it was. We, as wild liberty, liberty and freedom-loving people don't or did not trust these big federal institutions. So we had to sell the gold to the Federal Reserve. Then in 34, the Federal Reserve had to pass on that gold to the Treasury. And that's when it went to Fort, okay. to, to Fort Knox. So it's right. after my, my story. So now get to the gold clauses and what that term means and what happened. Which yeah. is so we had, had, we had been on the gold standard for our whole history. Yeah. And um, so since Alexander Ham Hamilton uh, created, founded the Mint, we had been on the gold standard. We only had adjusted the price of gold once in 1834. And it went from $19.8 an ounce to 20.67. Very small change. 
And we did that in order to align the price of gold and the price of silver, because we had a ratio of 15 and a half times. So those of you that follow this market, right now the ratio is like 72 times. The price of gold is 72 times the price of silver. At that time it was 15 and a half times. And in the rest of the world, that ratio was 16 times. And that created a lot of problems, because people would buy gold here and sell it the, and, uh, abroad. And so. so we just made that change. And um, uh, we had that always lived under this gold standard. And then what happened is that during the Civil War, the Union printed greenbacks, Green which were treasury dollars that were not backed by gold. And then people said, well, I want to be paid with the good dollars, the ones that are backed my debt by gold, not the greenbacks. So during the Civil War, these clauses into debts were introduced that said that debts had to be discharged, if the, if the debt had the clause, in gold or gold equivalent. So you could pay in paper money. You didn't have to carry like big gold bars to pay your mortgage, but you had to pay the equivalent Right. Yeah. So then FDR finally... And whoever got the money then theoretically would have been able to go and to collect go and the gold. Buy, and buy gold, exactly. Yeah. So okay. FDR finally is convinced by one of some of his advisors to get off the gold standard and to raise the price of gold. So is he, that because there just isn't enough gold? That's because there isn't enough gold. So if you hmm. raise the price of gold, the pyramid in terms of paper money becomes... The base of the pyramid becomes bigger, and then you can build a higher pyramid hmm. of credit. And he's told by his advisors, look, the Brits did it in September of 31, and they seem to be getting off the Great Depression. It seems to be working for them. And since the Brits had gotten off the gold standard, they had a competitive advantage. They could uh, 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 get to world markets and sell stuff, I don't know, in Argentina or uh, Persia at a more convenient price. So he's ready, FDR is ready to devalue the dollar relative to gold. That means raise the price of gold. And then he's told, hold on. Every debt in the US, private and public, is written in gold terms. So if you increase the price of gold, debt is going to go up by that same percentage. And you're going to bankrupt the federal government, every railway company, every utility, and most people, because mortgages are in gold terms. So FDR said, well, we control the Congress. Let's pass a law that annuls, abrogates the gold clause. And he does that. The Congress does that Congress on, June, went along with it. on June 5, 1933. And the, the, the incredible thing is that he changes contracts going forward, which is not strange, but retroactively. And so now all contracts are annulled, and they don't have the gold clause. And then the price of gold officially goes from 2067 to $35 an ounce. And people that then have are creditors, and in particular, families, normal middle-class families, and even working-class families that had bought liberty bonds to finance World War I, said, now I want to get my money back, it says here, gold equivalent, at the new price of gold. And that's when they sue the government and the Supreme Court has to step in. That's why my grandmother, or great-grandmother, I guess it is, hated Franklin Delano Roosevelt. She remembered that time. You see, I, as I've been giving some talks on, on, on this topic, many people 
uh, have said what you just said. Which yeah. my, my grandmother or one of or my aunt hated him because of yeah. what? Because yeah. he took away uh, her yeah. gold coins. Yeah. Uh, and 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 that and it went to the Supreme Court, and then that's a different, um, very incredible. Well, story. we want to get there. Yeah, I just want to say that when my when my brother-in-law announced that he was a Democrat, my grandmother dropped her knitting. I mean, that was the <laughs> that was the end of the uh, okay. uh, because of the gold. All right. So the Congress got into the act, then they they uh, passed a law that that uh, made what he did legal. Obviously, that was appealed to the Supreme Court. And now take us all the way to the effort to pack the Supreme Court, because that's what Yeah, so let me, let me just say one thing that is interesting. The, there are, in the Senate, the, the, the group that is pushing for getting off gold, there are two main senators. Uh, one is um, Senator Elmer Thomas from Oklahoma, and the other one is Burton Wheeler from Montana. What is interesting about Wheeler is that um, he his main achievement is that he becomes a fictional vice president of the United States in Philip Roth's uh, The Plot Against America. And in that novel, the president is Charles Lindbergh, so FDR loses the, his third uh, uh, period. He doesn't, and Lindbergh becomes the president. And this guy, uh, Burton Wheeler, who was an isolationist and an inflationist, is the vice president. So, that's interesting uh, that I, I found out by doing this research. An economist who reads Philip Roth. I think that's pretty good. Eh? <laughs> so it, the, 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 the Supreme Court then gets to, uh, to see these cases. And um, the, the, the Supreme Court is just like now. It's five to four um, with four staunch conservatives. And they are known as uh, the four horsemen and four liberals. And the liberals have magnificent legal minds, uh, including uh, Benjamin Cardozo and Justice uh, Brandeis, and Justice Harlan Stone, who then would become Chief Justice. Mm -hmm. So a magnificent group of legal minds. Uh, and the Chief Justice is Charles Evans Hughes, who has been Governor of New York, Secretary of State, and presidential candidate. He's a progressive Republican for the Republican Party, who almost beat Woodrow Wilson in his re-election bid in uh, 1916. And the court then is the, the four and four, and Hughes sort of sometimes sides with the conservatives, which are led by a Kentucky gentleman called James Clark McReynolds, a racist Southern Democrat, gold Democrat. He liked to wear bow ties. Uh, bow ties, yeah. he liked to wear bow ties, that's right. And uh, I was going to wear my bow tie, but then I said, I, I won't do that. <laughs> That's no, the wrong connotation. Right, 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 especially today. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and the, so the Supreme Court has to see these four cases. Two of them, remember that what the Congress does is abrogates the gold clause on all debts, private and public. Two cases are on private debt, and two cases are on public debt. And the Supreme Court, five to four, with... Uh, uh, Ju Chief Justice Hughes being the vote that sort of decided this, uh, has no problem deciding that Congress does have the constitutional power to change private contracts. So the US Constitution, as I found out doing this research when I started doing it, gives the power to mint currency and determine the value thereof. That's more or less what it says in Article 1, Section 8, to Congress. So Congress can do that. That's 
so, so Congress can run monetary policy. It, it outsources it to the Federal Reserve today. But any time, they can get it back constitutionally and, and fire all the people from the Federal Reserve. Mm. So my, all my economist friends are trembling. <laughs> <laughs> so the Congress says, the, uh, the Supreme Court says, yeah, if needed to undertake its monetary policy, Congress needs, needs to change these contracts, it can change them. But then came the question of what to do with the two cases that involved the uh, public debt. And one of them was a liberty bond. And there was a guy who had bought this Liberty, $10,000 worth of Liberty bonds in 1917. And he said, I want now $16.9,000 for the $10,000 because at the new price of gold, since it's gold equivalent, in paper dollars, this is what I need. And the Supreme Court uh, did something very strange and very important. They decided that it was unconstitutional, unconstitutional, could not be done to abrogate the gold clause for public debt. And they said that, yes, government, Congress has the power to print money and coin money and determine the value thereof, but it also has the power to issue debt on the credit of the United States. And that second power implicitly has the obligation of paying back the debt that you are issuing. And you cannot use, the Supreme Court said, one power to annul another power. So it's unconstitutional. But then it said, the plaintiffs have not proven damages because this, there is a deflation. And in terms, not of gold, in terms of gold, of course, they can get less gold, but you, they cannot get gold anyway because it was confiscated. So they said, how, my, how many uh, bushels of wheat and uh, uh, tons of uh, uh, cotton and uh, dozens of eggs they can get with the same $10,000, and they concluded roughly the same as before. So there's no damages. The government could not do what it did, but since there were no damages, it didn't have to pay anything. So it sided in this very strange way for all four cases with the government. And that's when Justice McGrandle says, the Constitution as we know it has come to an end. Shame and humi humiliation will come over us. And nothing of the sort happened. Well, nothing of the sort happened then, but <laughs> there were these shocks. They were. It, it had to be a shock when, when all of a sudden you had to go in and, and sell your bracelets and your, your watch straps to the uh, federal Well, you didn't have to do that because jewelry you could keep. All right, okay, yeah, jewelry you could all keep. your gold coins. Oh, your chandelier, whatever it yeah. is that had to sell. Yeah. Uh, or your gold coins that right, your right. grandfather left you or yeah. whatever. So, but, but the real question, it would seem to me, would be faith in the full credit of the United right. States. And so this went on for a period of time, and they're arguing about it. The Supreme Court is passing rules and, yeah. or, or so deciding cases and being challenged. And, yeah, and so then, got, then comes the effort uh, of, yeah. So Was this there panic over yeah. this? Um, people were divided because they, so the dollar value of gold was raised in January of 34, and the Supreme Court cases were argued in January of 35. And during 34, things were improving. Okay, the, so economy improving. the economy was improving. Mm -hmm. So people, on the one hand, were outraged. It's very un-American to take gold away from people, mm -hmm. and it's very un-American. It's not as bad as what we've seen these days, as un-American stuff, but it was un-American. <laughs> Um, and it's un-American to annul contracts retroactively. 
But at the same time, they saw the economy improving, and they said, well, this is because we had gotten off the gold standard. So they, people were, when the Supreme Court, now, the, the case was argued by the Attorney General, and he did very poorly in, the, in arguing the case. And every newspaper in the US thought that the Supreme Court was going to side with the plaintiffs. And, and then, at that point, there was panic. And FDR prepared a speech saying that he was not going to abide by the ruling, that he was going to defy the ruling. And he had a plan to defund the Treasury so that the Treasury could not pay uh, at a higher rate because they didn't have enough money at the, at the, at the new uh, price. And in the, the speech is available in um, the Roosevelt Presidential Library. And it's written over it uh, by uh, FDR in his handwriting to be delivered the night after the day, comma, if needed. And it's a, it's a remarkable act of defiance. I mean, luckily he didn't have to do it. But then he get, got, of course, very upset with the Supreme Court ruling against the New Deal. And then in 37, he tries to pack the Supreme Court. So very quickly, because I think we're going to run out of time before we uh, cover much more. Uh, the National Recovery Act, the NRA, different terms, different uh, initials uh, stands for, uh, the uh, Reconstruction Finance Corporation, uh, the New Deal, essentially. Yeah, the AAA, the, the, the Agriculture Adjustment Act. Yeah. The, uh, um, they were declared unconstitutional. Right. The huge um, Tennessee Valley Authority. Right. All of these institutions are being established at this time. Right. So did that distract, distract people's attention, or, 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 or was it... Uh, you know, positive enough that they were able to, or, 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 or well, how did he get credit for the, I, how did he establish enough credibility, I guess I should say, having broken his promise so extraordinarily, um, in, in order to get those things passed and, yeah, and to he, get the New Deal underway? Yeah, they, I, mean, I, I was not around. <laughs> You've done a lot of research. And, um, but they said that um, Ronald Reagan was a great communicator. Um, I think that FDR was the first great communicator. He started in, on January, uh, excuse me, uh, March 13th. He gave his first fireside chat, and you can listen to them uh, in YouTube. And they are still they are still. Mm. Pick, I mean, they, these are photographs, yeah. but he had this nasal voice, yeah. and he was very reassuring. And he had uh, his uh, timber was a, a tenor. So he was not a great baritone voice. Uh, Richard Nixon had a baritone voice. Right? Mm. But, but, but uh, Roosevelt had his nasal, but he was very reassuring. And, and he tells people, after, when the banks are reopened after that first week when they are closed under this amazing thing, uh, trading with him, he says, now you definitely should bring your money back because the banks that we're going to open are going to be safe. And people do that. So he convinces people that what they're doing, that he's doing his best. Um, and since the economy is improving, they uh, give him the benefit of the doubt. I, just to, I don't know if we're about to run out of time. I started doing this work uh, in, in, in or thinking about writing this book in 2002, when I was hired by a major law firm in New York to write an expert report on Argentina. Argentina at the time had changed its contracts that were in dollar terms into paper pesos. 
And I had to write the economics part of the report. And the lawyers told me, read this section of the, our brief. Don't read the rest. They don't want you to read the rest because we charge by the hour, like they do. <laughs> and I said, I cannot do this if I don't read the whole brief. And, I, and then there was this one paragraph that said, by the way, there is a legal precedent in 1933, blah, 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 and 1935, the US Supreme Court. And he said, and if it was legal for the US to do it due to a necessity, it's also legal for us to do it due to our own necessity. And I started asking around to my colleagues at UCLA and, and Berkeley and Harvard, and almost no one knew about it. So I said, well, this is collective amnesia because it's something that we did that does not square with the way we think Americans should behave, which is contracts are sacred, sacred and we don't do what Argentina does. Right. But it, it also, though, it seems to me to suggest that public confidence is more important than gold. Public confidence is more important than gold. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great way to put it. And uh, President Roosevelt was able to get uh, uh, confidence. Uh, and he was a great communicator. So what about now? Is that something that could happen to, in the United States again? Could the United States default Remember, that's the name of the book, American Default. That's yeah. what Roosevelt did. He defaulted on the debt, and everybody else had to default on their debts, right. too. Could that happen again? Well, we have a huge debt, um, uh, and, uh, and it's made up of different segments. So uh, the documented US debt is about $22 trillion, which is about 100% of our income, our G, GDP gross domestic product. Per year? No, the, the, yeah, per year, that's yeah. our GDP, yeah. but that's our total debt. Right. Uh, some experts, like my uh, good friend Ken Rogoff from Harvard and uh, Carmen Reinhardt, have said any country that goes above 90, that is not Japan. Japan is special, why? Because there are lots of Japanese there, they say. And they are, <laughs> and they are very frugal, they are different they have a different attitude to it. But if you are more than 90% of GDP, you're in trouble. And we have 104. But then we have the debt, that's, which is a social security debt, because we've promised people to pay, and it's not possible. And then there is Medicare part A, B, and D, and C, and all the parts. <laughs> and if you add all of that up, the total debt of the US that uh, uh, is about 80, Eight zero trillion dollars, uh, and that's huge. That is four times more than the maximum. Uh, so um, I think that it's a real possibility that we will default on some of that debt, and the number one candidate is Social Security for people like professionals and people of some means, like I think lots of people in this room. But that's, that's debt that's, it's debt because it's been promised. Right. You don't have to pay it. You, well, if you, you want. You can break your promise. You can break, the, you can break your promise. The, the, the working title of this book was uh, uh, Broken Promises. And the editors at Princeton said, that's not a very good title. It won't sell. <laughs> <laughs> we break promises in all walks of life all the time. So they said, this is a great book, and we want to, uh, to sell it, so let's title it uh, American Default. And I said, if it sells books, yeah, let's. <laughs> and well, aren't there a lot of things that could be done, though, with Social Security, short of not 
paying what is promised. Couldn't you, you know, apply the social security tax earlier, or raise it, or, or change the age limit? Or, yeah, we changed all the, kinds of things. You right, can do. we changed the age limit at one point already, and um, it was 65, and now it's 67, uh, and we could continue to to raise that. It, it's very unpopular. When we did that, uh, Pete Domenici was in the Senate, um, and uh, that was a long time ago. And it was passed to be enacted like 10 years later. Uh, so that was, uh, and we, but we could do that. Uh, we could uh, reduce, reduce the, the benefits. Uh, we're going to do any of the, but anything that we do is going to, uh, there's going to be legal challenge. And the point that I make in the book is that the Supreme Court already ruled in 35 that the argument of necessity, if there are lawyers uh, around here, the legal argument of necessity uh, was, uh, has a precedent with respect to government debt, and that was in 1935. And it will surely um, it will be litigated and uh, good lawyers, uh, I mean, good lawyers, Argentine lawyers already are using this argument. Uh, Venezuelan lawyers are going to use this argument as soon as their default hits the, the courts. Greek lawyers already used it. So it's a precedent that is there. It hasn't been used in the US because we haven't needed it, but it's very possible that it will happen. You, there's a wonderful phrase that is used in this context, which is excusable default. Right, that's what I argue in the book. It's an, it's a, uh, uh, there are different types of defaults. One is uh, sort of a, a default uh, that is a defiant default, uh, and one that is excusable. Uh, and, and the greatest excusable default is if there is a natural disaster. So if your debt is due tomorrow and there is a tsunami that destroys all your sources of foreign exchange and you are a developing country, it's an excusable default. And, and the creditors in general are very much willing to restructure the debt, to push back payments, to reduce interest rates. They understand. Um, and that was the argument that uh, the, the US uh, lawyers made in 1935 the Supreme Court bought into them. So here's the United States uh, defaulting on the debt, buying up all the gold, creating all these new institutions. People don't know whether they're going to work or not. And then toward the end of the year, they repealed prohibition. That, that was a really good idea. Yeah, so let me, yeah, so let me, that's, that's a great point. So, so um, uh, the, uh, the Democratic Convention, the Democratic primary is very, it's highly contested at this time, and it's Al Smith who is the patron of FDR, politically speaking. Uh, there's some social issues there. I mean, a patrician guy and the other guy more normal, right? Uh, and, but finally, and, and, and at the time, um, the, uh, there were votes and, 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 and delegates were not committed. They could shift sides. But finally, FDR is nominated. And he's the first candidate. And the candidate is not at the convention site. He flies from New York to Chicago to give the speech the next day. And so picture this, all the delegates. And FDR walks to the podium, walks in quotation marks, his bodyguard on one side and his son James on the other. And he walks to, and he stands there. And the crowd is cheering, applauding. And then they start chanting. This is when unemployment is 40%. 
people are jumping off buildings, committing suicide because they are desperate. What are they chanting? They are chanting, we want beer. We <laughs> want beer. <laughs> the most important part in the, in, the, in the platform, in the Democratic Party platform, was repealing prohibition. That's what people wanted. They didn't want jobs. They didn't want, <laughs> we want beer. That's what was what they were chanting. No, but I think you, you really do suggest how utterly devastating the Depression was, starting in 1929, going on until 1932, and then 33 when things began to get better. Just review a little bit of, of the, the magnitude of that economic... Oh, it, uh, was, it was absolutely devastating. And so uh, national income went down by 60%. Automobile production, which it was still a novelty. Most families did not own a car, but they aspire. Uh, automobile production went down by 80%. Uh, uh, agricultural prices went down by about 80%. So a farmer who had a mortgage, uh, which was equivalent to, I don't know, 10,000 bushels of uh, whatever, uh, corn, by uh, in, 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 in 1926, which was just sort of the benchmark, by 1932, instead of 10,000 bushels, the equivalent was 30,000. So you had to produce three times more to pay your mortgage than when you, 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 you contracted it. Uh, we didn't have unemployment data. The modern unemployment starts to be collected in 39, but it's estimated that 33% uh, of people were unemployed. 20% um, of the people that, had a, people that had a job in 29 had lost it. So 25%, one out of four people that had a job had lost it. Uh, it, was, uh, it was absolutely um, uh, horrible. And people started to think about immigrating out of the country. And they realized that, as I said in the book, their cousins that had gone to Australia or to Argentina uh, were in even worse situation. This was worldwide. There was nowhere to, as I said, nowhere to go, no help, and almost uh, no hope. And uh, Hoover and his group thought that the way to go was to uh, work harder. And uh, his Secretary of the Treasury said, liquidate everything, and, and that will create uh, uh, build character, create character. The people will steal themselves and they will understand that the American way is to get up very early in the morning, work hard, and, and then FDR comes with all these ideas and, and he said, we will try everything and if it doesn't work, we'll recognize it and try the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And people like that. And very quickly, before we go to the questions and answers, which I think it's time to do, uh, you spent a lot of time talking about how uncertain Roosevelt was and how uncertain he, his aides were, the so-called... Uh, the Brains Trust. The Brains Trust, uh, about what they were going to do. Right. They didn't... I mean, it was great to talk, talk about it now and uh, name all these agencies and so on and so forth. They didn't have the faintest idea what they were going to do. They didn't know what to do. And the Brains Trust was a group of academics, most of them from Columbia University, and it was headed by a fellow called Raymond Moley who went on to be the first editor of Newsweek. And um, uh, they, uh, so Molly is the guy that uh, uh, wrote the speech of uh, uh, the only thing to fear is fear itself. 
uh, and he coined the term the New Deal, and a, a, a very uh, a great guy. And his archives are up in uh, at Stanford, at the Hoover okay. Institution. I spent a lot of time reading through his stuff. Um, but they didn't know what to do. They had no idea uh, on uh, what to do. There, were, there was only one economist in that group, uh, very good-looking guy. He looked like a, a matinee idol called Rex, Rexford Tagwell, a uh, professor also at Cornell, who went on to become governor general of Puerto Rico. And, but he didn't know what to do either. He, he was sort of enamored of the Soviet Union. So he, that's why they accused Roosevelt of one thing, to turn communist. So, fascinating year, uh, 1933. I think the, I was thinking, either 33 gonna, or 60. I'm going to interrupt you because I think it really is time to okay. go to the uh, Q and A. It's a wonderful book. It's been a privilege to talk to you, and I really, really. Warren, enjoyed. great. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Allison Ford. I'm wondering what you think about the impact would be if state and local governments were to go bankrupt. So I'm thinking of specifically Illinois with their pension crisis and, of course, Puerto Rico with the tragedy that has been going on there. If they were to go bankrupt or other localities and states did, what would be the impact nationally? We have had some uh, local governments, including Orange County, go uh, bankrupt uh, here in, in California. Uh, and the Puerto Rico situation right now is, of course, very serious. Um, it would be a big problem. There is a provision in, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but in, in bankruptcy law for dealing with that, it's called Chapter 19. And uh, so it's more or less orderly. Uh, the tragedy in Puerto Rico is that since it's not a state, uh, it is not eligible for uh, Chapter 19. That's why during uh, the Obama administration, they passed a special statute to deal with that's called PROMESA, Puerto Rico something, something, which is promise in Espanol, right? And uh, so it would be devastating. When we look at the debt that we have in the U.S. right now, if we take into account the documented debt, so the, the treasury bills and notes, and so that's $22 trillion. If we add the unfunded part of Social Security and Medicare, it's another uh, um, 50 or six, 60 trillion. 60 trillion. That's Medicare. And then there's another 20 trillion of unfunded state and local. Um, and that includes Illinois um, and many counties. Um, and, 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 and I think that what we're seeing is that, and, and we saw it in Detroit, right? That there's, there's renegotiation and restructuring, and many public sector workers take a hit with their pensions. So I think that that would be the avenue. But, it, but it's something that is there, it's real, and, uh, and, and, and it could happen. Many states, are restructuring their debts now and r rolling it over, taking advantage that we still have very low interest rates. Still, the 10-year interest rate is below 3%, or it was on Friday. So uh, that's, that's a good thing. There are two things that aren't clear to me. It, it isn't clear to me why. Uh, OK, so Roosevelt decides to go off the gold standard. Maybe that's Keynesian thinking. You can expand credit. Maybe that's it. It's not clear to me why that means private citizens can't hold gold. You know, the two don't seem to be connected. Right. That's, a, that's a great question. So gold, in order for gold to be on the basis of the pyramid, it has to be held ultimately by either banks or the Federal Reserve. 
And if it is under people's mattresses, it doesn't count. It's not part, it's not called monetary gold. So one of the, the, the um, inconveniences or drawbacks of the gold standard is that gold is used as a monetary element, but also as speculative and so on and so forth. So it fluctuates in price a lot. So when in 1849 gold was discovered in California, something happened. Uh, but then if a ship with a big uh, gold uh, cargo sinks, then the opposite happens. So the, 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 the problem is that people had taken their gold out of circulation. And when Roosevelt closes the banks in the first week of March, and as I said, then he gives his first fireside chat, he convinces people to take back their money to the banks. They take their money back to the banks, but not their gold. So only about half, all, all of the actual notes that were taken and were under mattresses go back to banks. But the actual physical gold, only about two-thirds of it goes back. And that's when they say, we need that other third, because it makes a difference. And that's when he uh, then uh, uh, writes and, 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 and issues the executive order of April 5th, ordering people to surrender all their gold. So it's an, and, and, then they, and then there's an embargo, and you cannot ship gold to Europe. So the, and that's to maintain a very solid base to this credit pyramid. Um, you may have touched on this a little in the previous question, but do you think it would be feasible for us to ever return to a gold standard, and what would the economic look, landscape look like in, in that case? I don't think that it is uh, possible. Um, uh, the main thing about the gold standard, wait, 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 let me, Bitcoin is a sort of gold standard, okay? So uh, the people at Princeton, when, I, when we were talking about the title of the book, I talked earlier that I had a really lame title, Broken Promises, and they said, no, it should be American Default. And then they wanted me to add Bitcoin to the title. <laughs> said, Could you squeeze like Bitcoin? Because it had FDR, gold, and Supreme Court, three catch terms that people like. And buy. Say, if you add Bitcoin, it's going to sell. So, <laughs> So Bitcoin is a little bit like the gold standard. So the gold standard, the, the, the appeal that it has to some people is that gold is very difficult to mine. It's expensive. It doesn't take as much energy as to mine Bitcoin, but it's very expensive. And it only grows at, uh, the availability grows at a very small rate through time. So you cannot have central bankers that do quote unquote crazy things if you have the gold standard. And you have a stable value of the paper money relative to gold. I don't think that we can do that in, the, in, in this country. Um, we have learned how to have exchange rates, value of euro to the dollar, the yen to the that fluctuates and works relatively well. But there are countries that have tried that in other parts of the world. Uh, for instance, in Argentina, they, instead of a gold standard, they had a dollar standard, which collapsed in 2001, as I was explaining earlier. Um, and they tried to do the gold standard, but instead of gold, using dollar. I just uh, uh, came back a few weeks ago from Iceland, where I was advising the central bank. Iceland is the size of Culver City, <laughs> right? Uh, although they are in the, gold, uh, in the World Cup, but Culver City is not. <laughs> right? and, and Iceland has its own currency, okay? There is a currency there, and, and, and they had a huge, horrible crisis. Now they're over it, and they're thinking, well, what should we do going forward? 
should we have a currency of our own? And one of the thoughts is have a gold standard relative or type of gold standard relative to the euro, because you're really in the euro area. So countries, smaller countries, are thinking about doing that. Um, and we may, if Bitcoin really takes off, which is a different talk, um, we may see something like that. But I don't see, there are people like Art Laffer, the people at the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal that would like to see a return to the gold standard. Rand Paul, um, I, I don't see it as feasible. I think that it's good discussion, good conversation. My name is Jonathan Boxer. It's my understanding that China and other foreign countries, but China in particular, hold a large amount of U.S. debt. Could China, as part of this seemingly ongoing or coming trade war, push the U.S. into bankruptcy? Um, that's a great question. Uh, the answer is I don't think so. I mean, I, I was going to say no, but I, I, I have to hedge myself, so I don't think so. Uh, so I said our debt is $22 trillion. Of that, about 17 trillion is in hands of the public. There's five trillion that is intergovernmental debt. It's debt issued by the government, held by government. So the Social Security Administration holds, the whole Social Security Fund is in treasuries. So the Social Security Fund, which has still a surplus, buys treasury notes. The Chinese hold about three trillion of those 17 trillion. Um, they, it's not too much. It's large, but not huge, huge, huge. And if they were to sell it, the price would go down, and it's like shooting yourself uh, on the foot, because they will be hurt, right? So right now, it's worth quite a bit. If they sell it and the price goes down, they are the main holders. They will be hurt. I don't think, I think that what we're seeing is what we're seeing, which is basically that they are slapping tariffs on 50 billion worth of our exports. Today, it's, we had the list, commercial uh, uh, airplanes, uh, soybeans, uh, and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and then we're going to, the administration, Peter Navarro, is going to increase our tariffs on them by more, and they're going to do the same. So the trade war, I think, is going to be constrained to the trade sphere. But it's a great question. That people think a lot about that. Um, let me just add one more thing. China stopped accumulating a lot of treasuries about seven years ago. There were some years when they were buying all of the treasuries, all of them, right, that we issued. And now their surplus is much, much smaller. So they are not buying. And our deficit is much smaller as well. And so it's, I, I don't think it's, I think the danger has declined. Hi, I'm Sylvia Holmes. Um, I'd like to know if you think it's a good idea if there's a um, bankruptcy to have already put into place these local currencies like the Brixton pound. When the um, when the Russell administration closed the banks on March 6th, so he comes on March 4th, which is a Saturday, March 5th is Sunday, March 6th, all banks are closed for a week. Different uh, localities in the US issue or start issuing their own currency, which is really like uh, coupons or vouchers. It's called script. And uh, Chicago has a script, its own script, and, and, and California has uh, parts of California. 
Interestingly enough, resorts issue script. Uh, because all, all these very rich people that are trapped there, including some royals, royalties from uh, Europe, and they have to go to the bar and drink dry martinis and double <laughs> or triples because their gold has been uh, seized and, and they cannot pay. So they sign vouchers or, or, or they, they, they say IOUs, IOUs are seven bucks worth, I don't know. $7 bought a lot of martinis at the time. <laughs> and then another guy bought, I don't know, $14 and signed. And this started circulating. And you would be, uh, I don't know, Prince Albert of Luxembourg. And you ended up with some IOUs by the Shah of Persia or something. <laughs> so local currencies were used. Um, I don't think it's uh, feasible in this modern time, uh, unless we have an app. The, the, the apps may, may do it. Uh, uh, but it's, 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 it's intriguing, community-based currencies. And uh, some communities are thinking about it. And, and uh, I, I, I don't think it's going to fly. Uh, uh, but, but if it does, uh, it will be really interesting. Yeah. Hi, my name is Josh Grammer. Um, if I was looking to, if I was a world power looking to drive the US to bankruptcy and into default, what would be the fastest, most effective way to make that happen? Oh, that's yeah, uh, that's... Uh, Don't tell him. No. <laughs> no, but... but, but um, the, the, the way it, uh, it, uh, the system works now is all based on computers, right? So the payments... I was born in South America. I was born in Chile. And I came to the University of Chicago to get my PhD. And this was in 1977. And um, I, got, uh, uh, a I had a loan, a student's loan in Chile. So they sent me money, which I had to go and pick up at the first bank of Chicago. Banks at that time were not allowed to have branches. So I had to drive from Hyde Park to the Loop in Chicago in a really old car. I never knew if I was going to make it there <laughs> or make it back. If I, if I couldn't make it back, it was not that bad because I had cashed the check. <laughs> uh, and so we went from that situation. I lived under that situation where banks did not have branches. They could have th up to three branches, I think, within two miles radium. And that was it. And uh, the first interstate bank was a big novelty when it started to. And now we have this system where we go to ATMs, debit cards, and so on. So if a hacker were to stop the payments system, uh, that would be devastating. I mean, how do you pay for things? How do you buy Starbucks or a coffee? And, 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 and the whole thing will stop. And you say, I'm uh, Prince Albert from Luxembourg. Let me sign uh, an IOU for my dry martini. They will say, no, you don't have a debit card. You don't get dry martini. Right? <laughs> So hackers and uh, going to and, and, and dealing with the payment system, that would be devastating, yeah. But d don't tell them. Well, on that note, <laughs> um, thank you all so much for coming. First, I'd like to thank our friends at the UCLA Anderson School of Management for co-presenting tonight. So a big round of applause for them again, please.
Also, thank you to Gensler for bringing us into their beautiful home here, and thank you to all of you for coming, and please stick around for the post-event reception with Sebastian Edwards and Warren Olney. We also have Skylight Books here tonight selling copies of American Default, The Untold Story of FDR, The Supreme Court, and The Battle Over Gold. Thank you all so much for coming, and a big final round of applause for Sebastian Edwards and Warren Olney. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was a lot of fun.